1: Hello and welcome to another interview for Matifile. where this week I had the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Bara Shiban. Mr. Bara Shiban is a Yemeni activist and is incredibly active on social media in advocating for Yemen and human rights in the Yemeni state today. The conversation covers the peace building process of Yemen, what the major roadblocks are and the role of the international community in helping broker peace in the region. It talks a bit about what life under the Houthi regime looks like, and why it's incredibly problematic and incredibly difficult to get all parties on the table for a smooth, peaceful transition process. It was a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed interviewing Mr. Shiban. Here's the conversation. Hello and welcome to this episode of Matterfile where we are honoured to have with us Mr. Bara Shiban. Mr. Shiban is a Middle East and North Africa caseworker at Reprieve and has been a consultant of the Yemen embassy in London itself. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Shivan.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, such an honour to be with you.
1: And I want to start this interview going back to the roots of the present day conflict, which is past the Saleh government's demise. And in about 2013 and 2014, when you had the Yemen National Dialogue, of which you were, of course, the youth representative, what was the dialogue intending to achieve in 2013 and 2014? And did it succeed in achieving that? What happened there?
0: Um, I think touching on the national dialogue is really one of the times that Yemen was trying really to touch on Kind of the core issues um, that it has been struggling with in terms of what is the type of governance it wants to be, uh, what is the, the conflict it has to discuss openly, uh, what is the mechanism and transitional justice um, form it has to go through in order to move towards the uh, to mo- move towards uh, the future the main problem in, 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 in Yemen that every conflict will drive you a couple of years if not decades uh, if not decades back Um, but to look into this specific conflict the one that we are currently living you at least need to go back to 2011 like even 2011 like if you if you're not really doing a like you know an academic search or you're not trying to go into the full detail but at least you need to understand the situation uh, since what was known back then as the arab spring uh, the Arab Spring protests, and the Arab Spring protest had a lot of dynamics in it, but within it there was a hidden let 's say hidden conflict um, that the Sahara was able to, to basically pressure put it under the uh, uh, under the carpet so when the um, the protests happened in the in the square, the main demand was. A very specific demand directed towards Saleh and his family. So there was a clear demand by a huge segment of the public that they need him to step down and his family members. Um, and it was in the light of Saleh trying to pass a uh, an amendment to the constitution that would allow him to run indefinitely. And that was kind of the sparking, uh, let's say, incident that led to a series of incidents that uh, that followed. Now. After the uh, 2011, there was kind of, I wouldn't say a very like smooth transition, but kind of Yemen looked like it was heading towards the the right direction. So in terms of we had for the first time, finally, a, a national dialogue. And when I mean a national dialogue, a representation of all segments of society and coming from all provinces of Yemen that were largely excluded from the process for a very, very long time. So one of the main problems that Yemen suffered is that post the unification in 1990, power became very, very centralized. And now a centralized government is not just by itself a problem. The problem is that when a centralized government becomes, you know, overruled by a patronage network, just benefiting a very, very small circle of people, and the demands from other regions of the country started to rise up, saying we feel excluded, we feel we're not part of the government. Our voices are not heard. There is no inclusion in the decision uh, making process. Uh, what made things worse is Yemen economy has suffered for many for many years. Now it was looking okay uh, in the era of the 80s and especially after oil was discovered in the province of Marib in, in, in North Yemen and the discoveries of oil in the south of Yemen should have made it even better. But following the decision by Saleh in 1990 to back uh, or to support Saddam, when the invasion of Kuwait happened, the Gulf countries retaliated by expelling a large number of people, close to a one million people of Yemenis, who were. Who would usually send revenues and and remittances back to the country, and that led to a collapse of the of the economy that it couldn't survive until today. Like you can imagine, from nineteen ninety, we're living the consequences of what happened of what happened back then. So, when uh, the oil explorations happened in the mid nineties, yes, there was an increase of the like people would see that the for example the budget of the government is increasing, but the country as a nation is not feeling that it's it's actually there is development that that things are moving moving smoother and what made things even more difficult is that when Saleh started to put his sons his nephews into key military positions and thus the conflict started kind of like a small conflict started with the Houthis um, which started just as they were a small religious group in the north of the country like up up north of the of the country and people didn't see it as a big problem back then because Saleh was able to maneuver his ways through, you know, those small, small conflicts that have always um, erupted through his time. Now, what happened is the problem is after 2000 and, uh, 2011, because the transition deal was signed um, and it was sponsored Yes, it was sponsored by the the Gulf countries in general, specifically Saudi Arabia, but it was heavily backed by the international community. The Security Council issued a number of uh, resolutions backing uh, the deal and encouraging Yemen to have a vote for a new referendum and a new new constitution. This is where we came in. So we came in to put a framework for the uh, new constitution. So basically, the period after 2011, Saleh started to work with the Houthis, although being an enemies of the of the past but effectively um the state looked weaker uh, than than ever before, so you have basically part of the state is working against the the transition so through the period of two thousand and twelve and two thousand and thirteen, the Houthis were advancing militarily, and that was basically effectively a coup because. The government is losing is you know is losing its capture of parts of the country and it's losing control of parts of the country to effectively rise of a new uh, military wing and the new military wing is a kind of a mixture between the, the the Houthis, which is a religious group but also members of the form of kind of the military who also represent kind of the Northern elite of the um, of the country, kind of the associates of uh, of Saleh. Um, I still believe until today that Saleh didn't thought that it would go this far. That I think he knew at the time that he could reverse the engine and quickly convince, especially the regional powers, that he can come back to power quickly and you know reinstall law and order back in the country. But as as everything things can go under like out of control and. The breaking point was in September 2014 because what happened is you have a militant group um, that is no longer associated with the process, the government, the, the basic even forms of governance. Uh, they, they don't really even subscribe to being a political party. And they have been felt like they have been, you know, you, you have a group that has been growing up in terms of number, recruitment, and being, ex- being, being excluded for a couple of years while they're building themselves militarily. So, and I think this is kind of the main flaws of what people don't see, is that when a part of the country is excluded for a number of time, for a period of time, if you have children, and, and I remember I went to Sada myself in 2007 and 2008, and it was during the fourth war of Sada between Saleh and the, uh, Saleh and the Houthis. And I remember very well back then that I met children. There were children at an age of 12 to 13 carrying weapons, and they were kind of fighting under the uh, the Houthi banner. Now, if that child, if I move forward until 2017, that child would have been now 23. All what he witnessed in his life is war. Now, imagine a group of people who have been meeting, recruiting, and campaigning for all that period and all what they think is that they're going to this war is is coming. So the kind of the excluding Sada from whatever was happening in the, in the rest of the country did contribute into the exacerbating of this current, the current conflict. So when they took control of, over, over Sana'a, it meant that the deal that was negotiated and agreed, even within the national dialogue, might no longer be necessary because the deal at its core uh, mo- was agreed that Yemen would move from a centralized form of governance to a federal system, and that we would have a transitional justice process, that we were going to address the grievances of the south of Yemen, but also the grievances of the Sada issue, which is the Houthi, uh, kind of the Houthis' um, problems that they have been facing with the central government uh, since, uh, 2000 and, uh, since 2004. But when you have the same militant group are effectively in control over the capital, they might no longer like need a federal system because they are effectively running the uh, running the uh, running the show, and things kind of quickly deteriorated from there very very quickly. So we fe- quickly saw provinces um, descending into conflict. Houthi is able to go in and install their kind of a parallel. A security structure that is running, um, you know, in in parallel to the uh, formal security structure, and this resulted basically into the collapse of the of the process and leading to first of all February and March two thousand and fifteen when the Houthis uh, launched their offensive on the uh, on the southern uh, on the southern provinces, and I think no one expected that the, that the Saudis would. Uh, intervene, I mean, yes, they said that that they would uh, that they would intervene, but given the, the, the history, no one thought that they would actually milit- militarily, um, militarily uh, intervene um, and so that what happened uh, two thousand and fifteen March two thousand and fifteen came in. The Saudis fought uh, Saleh for the first time, although had been a long Saudi and, and a Gulf ally, um, for the first time had been in a camp where he 's fighting. He's fighting the, uh, the Saudis. Until 2017, when people started, especially in the northern provinces who live under Houthi rule, started to feel exhausted and think that Saleh might have some, you know, final trick under his sleeve that he can pull up at the, at the last, uh, at the last uh, moment. And that's when he announced a divorce from the, from the Houthis in late uh, 2017. And I think the surprising thing that the Houthis were very organized, that Saleh really looked like he didn't have anything. Um, they have managed to uh, overrun the military, the security, the intelligence, and um, effectively stripping him of all the else who pull back at, uh, at any moment. So I think that's another, like another period of which is the killing of Saleh in, two th- in late 2017 by the Houthis. Um, and then an, 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 a, cycle of, uh, a cycle of violence that we were, still, we're still living until today.
1: Um, I think that, that sets up the stage for today incredibly <laughs> So today, if I'm not wrong, that is, you have Sana'a controlled by the Houthis and a large part of northern Yemen controlled by the Houthi rebels. You have Aden and the South controlled by the Saudi-backed Hadi regime and the internationally recognized Hadi regime. And then you have the Southern separatist movement that is also gaining ground in the South for a separate state, which they had before the unification of 1990. What is it like for civilians living under the rules of each of these three? Because you touched on this when you talked about child soldiers. So if I'm a civilian living in Sana'a or in Aden or in Sada, what is, it, what is life like for me? Is it functionally different? Am I getting different access to food and water or is it equally bad all across?
0: I think we're not, uh, so it's, um, the people think it's like where it's good, where it's bad. I think the reality is where is it bad and where is it worse? <laughs> the current situation, only in parts of the country. So if you go to Hadramaut, maybe in the eastern eastern provinces, uh, if you go to Marib, if you go to Mahara, if you go to, Sh- like there there are some provinces that look, relatively stable and like are, are trying to cope with the current, uh, current challenges. The general climate is, there is a, there's a form of a militia rule across the country, um, no matter where, uh, where you go. And Aden and Sana'a are significant because those are the biggest cities of the country. And so if when Hadi moved out of Sana'a, he announced Aden to be the interim capital. And if you go to the to 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 an unfortunate city like Taiz in the central in the center part of Yemen, um, you have a huge number. It's the biggest num- city in terms of population, um, but they're trapped. It's an active uh, war zone, basically, and it signifies how things are not moving in any uh, in uh, in any di- uh, direction. The Houthis from one side have. Are surrounding almost all entrances into into the city and you have people in there suffering from dire access to food water medicine um, and then the food that comes into the city basically is more expensive because you know if, if you are a merchant you're adding the price of the transportation and all of the difficulties you, you you've gone through to to get the food uh, food into and in the uh, south instead of being at an interim capital where where things should relatively be uh, be stable what we saw is a rise of a separatist movement that is directly funded by the united arab emirates but also are not subscribed like are not associating themselves with the with the yemeni government so from one side they say we are joined in this coalition against the Houthis, but at the same time, we're not in the same camp with the internationally recognized uh, government. And um, it's a similar situation like in Sana'a and in, in Aden, you have literally a militia rule, a lack of law and order. Some government institutions um, are trying to function, uh, trying to operate, so you have even like some courts trying to to, to, to keep up their uh, their uh, their daily work in in sanaa the main difficulty is that they haven't been receiving salaries for the last two and a half years now um, so you can imagine hospitals teachers nurses um, every function of, of what people in 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 any part of the world would you know, take for granted, is not functioning because the the people haven't been paid the the, the salaries, and there are a few people who are trying to keep up uh, keep up work despite the uh, the challenges and the situation they're uh, they're living in. But uh, but of, of course, then it affects the uh, the population as a as a as a whole. Um, in the south of Yemen, the slight difference is that the public sector have been paid, so. Ha- at least the internationally recognized governments are paying their, their salaries. So things are a little bit moving. But in general, there is a clear lack uh, of a functioning uh, state, even to the basic, basic, uh, uh, basic level. And a civilian is basically, you know, you're, you're trapped between those, those options.
1: And uh, how easy is it to get humanitarian aid into these different areas? Is it easier to access Aden than it is to access Sana'a? Or are they equally easy to access for international bodies trying to provide aid? So
0: it depends on uh, how and where do you want to you want to distribute it. Now, if you want to just go to Sana'a, then yes, you can access it. Like most of the international agencies um, do um, manage to get their aid uh, to Sana'a. Now, the problem is... The majority of Yemenis don't live in the main cities. 70% of the population, even before the conflict, lived in rural areas. And that's where the difficulty lies. Um, So how are you going to get aid to people who are living far away from the main cities? And there are some cities that um, there are no aid agencies at all. And I gave you the example of Taiz in central Yemen. It's the most affected by the conflict, but there is not even a single... Uh, humanitarian agency uh, uh, operating there. Some of them do work through local NGOs, but um, it's very, very uh, limited what they um, uh, what they do. You can get aid to uh, trade in faster because the the uh, the port is still functioning and you can you can manage things. The problem is that once you try to cross it to the Houthis, the Houthis try to exercise themselves as a as a state. So they want to have um, customs, they want to have taxes, and if you've been taxed in Adam, they require for you to be taxed again or go through their own you know their own customs um, and and that basically makes it harder for either you know uh normal businessman who's trying just to get food to to uh to into the country but also for humanitarian agencies who have always been uh been complaining and i think the latest was the world food program who um have been threatening to um to you know uh stop all of their operations in yemen
1: that makes sense and that is quite compelling actually but uh what about and you've been incredibly critical of them in the past, but what of drone strikes and uh, airstrikes that have been happening across Yemen? Who are conducting them? Where are they being conducted? And why are they particularly bad as a form of military intervention?
0: If I'm trying to be, if I'm trying to be nuanced in terms of how how um, how how to approach this, is um, first of all you have the drone strikes. The drone strike is a is a say is a separate covert operation that is run by the united states um that is there is run you know with or without the this uh this conflict without the saudi-led coalition or or with them so um the problem i think with how drone strikes have been contributing to the to to worsening the uh, the situation is after 2011 the u.s became so you know, fixated on, on on this idea that its main objective in Yemen is to fight Al-Qaeda. While the whole country was moving through a huge transition, when you go to, when you used to go to, you know, to the people in Sana'a, in Taiz, and Adan, and across the country, people are really talking about the future. And... That's a very important and it signifies hope for the entire nation because they're thinking, what are we going to do? What are the, um, what is the coming elections going to look like? How are we going to move the country, uh, uh, the country forward? While I remember because I went to, I, I was in the United States in, 2000 and, uh, in 2013 and I met some, uh, some congressmen. Everything that was discussed regarding Yemen in D.C. was about Al-Qaeda. As if, like nothing else mattered, and it was so significant that when you people were talking like you re- I used to say like you realize people are moving through the this is the most important transition in the country's history yet all of your resources is being you know is being put into this small small group in uh, in the country and and this I think affected how they looked into the situation because after the things, the signs of a collapse was starting to happen, the international community could have quickly came in to help quickly to push it back and put it back on track so the collapse doesn't happen totally as we saw in 2000 and, uh, 2015. Um, but that wasn't what was discussed, um, at, especially at, at the international community. The main issue was how are we going to keep the drone strikes or the operations uh, active, uh, uh, active against Al Qaeda, um, and I think this the international community didn't think what was going to happen to Yemen, but what was going to happen to Al to uh, to Al Qaeda, and what happens is that effectively you have a country that is in conflict, and you have an operation or a covert war with Al Qaeda that doesn't seem it's ending anytime, um, uh, anytime soon. Now moving to the saudi uh, saudi led coalition the form of their intervention since they came in in 2015 was an air power they came with a huge air power that did significantly slow down the houthi's from being able to take the rest of the uh, the rest of the uh, of the country but the in any operation even when the international coalition you know against isis launched its campaign in Syria and, and Iraq, they only ended it when they had active troops on the uh, on the uh, on the ground. And you need to a little bit think on a long term sustainable uh, sustainable solution. And I think this is what was lacking since the beginning. So people thought that at the beginning it was just the confusion. You know, the coalition just didn't um, was so determined to, to just pushing back uh, back the Houthis. But the people really were looking for is, can they actually help the form of governance to to be reinstated within the country, so people can at least slowly go back to their to their normal lives, and uh, this is I think the main this has been the main flaw. Uh, since, since the beginning of this, of this conflict. Now, I wouldn't say that the, um, the of course, the other problem with, the, with, with using air power is, um, air power is just the type of ammunition is big. So the number of civilian casualties is going to be huge. And if you don't determine that within a specific time frame and you have a clear plan on what you're going to do uh, next, People in the country then starts to question, was that even necessary from the beginning? Even if it looked like at the beginning you're gaining some grounds, you're pushing the Houthis back into, into, some, into the provinces where they originally came from and, and so on. Um, but what is, what is lacking at the time is people is seeing a, a rise in tendency of militants being spread across, across the country. Uh, you have an active partner within the coalition, the Saudi-led coalition, funding a separatist group, a militia group, which is basically you know, running militias in several provinces. So it doesn't, it doesn't look like the whole, whatever the coalition is trying to achieve is going to be achieved and it's moving into the best interest of uh, Yemen as a nation and as a, as a country. And more importantly, it doesn't, the main purpose is that you announced your whole operation based on the fact that there is a militia that took control over the capital. What does it look like when you're actually, you know, you're, you're flooding the country with more militias?
1: Yeah, um, the militia problem is actually huge. People are also saying that there is internal factionalization between, within the Houthi rebels as well, and now there is increasing infighting within several northern tribes in Yemen and with the uh, and with the al-Qaeda as well to some degree. What does this mean for the peace process in Yemen, especially because the Riyadh agreement was going on and Riyadh peace talks were going on in 2019, they were restarted, and I think the southern separatists just backed out of them last month. What does this mean mm-hmm. for the process of peace in Yemen, and is it likely to be achieved anytime soon?
0: Well, the problem with with uh, with the peace process when since it's um, all of the rounds of negotiations have happened that we will see, so you see, for example, someone like the UN envoy will try to advocate that he achieved a huge success or he made a breakthrough in the negotiations. And what he really means is that he actually had a couple of meetings. He successfully met with X person and, and Y person. So nothing being implemented actively on the on the ground so the first of all I'll I'll answer your question about the Riyadh the Riyadh agreement like any any other agreement and kind of the main problem with a comprehensive political agreement in Yemen is the problem lies within not just the details but what is the military and security arrangements for this conflict to end And this is something that the international community is not willing to invest, nor time, effort or resources to effectively put into place. So a conflict could start at least, you know, at least the flames of of violence starts to cool down and and the country slowly can, you know, put itself together. Now, with the separatist agreement, it's it's a similar problem. The The main issue of the Riyadh agreement is that it said, let's form a new coalition government between the existing government and the uh, the Southern Transitional uh, Council, which is the, the Southern uh, Separatist Movement. And the military wings, they have to be merged together. So they made a series of steps of this will move to this part, this will move to this part. So you need to effectively diffuse them and then mix them together and then put them back. <laughs> That's something that, and, and it's a similar problem with the Houthis, they see that as the winning card. This is the card that actually put me on the negotiation table. This is the, the my military power is a thing that has, is actually making people to talk to me. When they see if they lose that, then they kind of lose, you know, their value as a as a uh, as a group. And the current separatist movement, so the Southern Transitional Council came into into place in two thousand and seventeen. But all of the southern movement groups, so there have been a couple of movements. Like they they gain momentum at certain times, but then they cool down, and then they gain momentum, and then and then and then they cool down. Um, but none of them had a a, a military wing. Now, adding to the problem, and I think this is one of the problems that Saudis are, 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 are struggling with at the moment, along with the international community, is they're not willing to address, I'd say, the elephant in the room, which is the reason why also the Sahel movement will continue pulling out of the agreement, is you have a partner, which is the UAE, constantly funding them and arming them. So unless you're willing to openly have a frank discussion with your, your partner about what's what's uh, what's happening, the conflict will not end. It's, it's that simple. Um, if I compare that to what happened with the Houthis, so when the Hudaydah Agreement, the Stockholm Agreement came into place, they agreed on the general framework, but of course, to have an enforcement mechanism is the challenge. That's where you actually need to enforce. So... Because the international community, unless they're willing to send on like peace mission that is actively going to see a demilitarization of the city of Hereda, nothing is going to move. Because you're just assuming that a process will move because of the goodwill of the both <laughs> of both sides, and that's not how peace can be uh, can uh, can be implemented. And the other thing is that you have countries, I would say, like the United Kingdom, who is actively engaged in the, in the discussion, trying to steer uh, the, um, the, the seat, and it, because it's, it's the pen holder in terms of Yemen at the Security Council, but it's not willing to, act, to actually invest in it in a way that we, uh, we say, this is how it's going to be implemented. And it looks like they just, they want to support Martin Griffiths as an envoy because just he's British, rather than actually seeing why did it fail? Why did Stockholm, let's have an honesty, so why did it fail and how can we surpass that or not allow for that to happen in the in uh, in the in the future?
1: What would an ideal military or security arrangement for a peaceful transition out of conflict look like for Yemen? Will it look like international troops or will it look like a coalition of current troops that are already present on ground, controlled by different parties?
0: The issue is... It's, um, it's not really clear. Like, no one can, like, it's not a definitive answer. Like, this is what it, it will look like. The way, the way it's going, it's going into a scenario where one side is going to exhaust the other side. One way, uh, one way or, or another. Now, that doesn't mean it's, gonna, it's going to achieve peace in the, uh, in the long run. But it may, in a couple of years, look like it will, things will cool down a little bit. An ideal peace process, yes, you need to have to oversee a process where you don't have militias on the ground. That's like that should be like your main objective. It's say you have a problem on the ground, you have a problem in Sanaa, in Aden, in Taiz, in, in the different cities. The main problem is that we have militias that are uh, and a lack of law and order. And in order to avoid that, you need to diffuse that. So you can revive parts of the security and the military that existed prior to 2014, but the reality is the current structure is totally different. It's something, it's something, uh, it's something new. So unless you oversee an active withdrawal of what people see as militants running the, uh, running the streets and being diffused to a form of a military that is, you know, that answers to answers to a government, and can you can actually hold it to account and have some form of accountability? The solution will just be hard to um, will be hard to to implement, because what you will see effectively is just different zones, and every, each zone is controlled by one party or the or or the other, and just waiting for when the coming clash will uh, will will happen. It's not a sustainable. Uh, it's not a sustainable solution.
1: Okay. And I, I wanted to briefly touch on human rights abuses in Yemen. What do these human rights abuses look like? Because the Houthis have been torturing prisoners, they've been clamping down on journalists that have critiqued them, and clamping down on any form of opposition that speaks out against Houthi legitimacy. Why is the clampdown this violent, and what can be done about it? The Houthis,
0: since they came into Sana'a, so until I would say until even until to two thousand and fifteen, um, the general atmosphere within politicians within civil society in Yemen was: we need to open up to the Houthis, we need to include them, we need to attract them into the peace process, we need to convince them that actually having a civil state is a is a it's good for everyone, uh, including <laughs> including um, including them. The problem, I think, what with what happened is the Houthis have two main wings within it you have a political wing and you have the military wing now the political wing are the people who they've sent to talk they sent to the un they talk to the uh, um, diplomats and they are the ones who used to negotiate with us uh, all the uh, all the time so all things were looking nice pink and rosy now the decision making power is within the military wing and the military wing is some of them some of the even the 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 individuals who run the the military wing go by aliases that people don't actually know their their you know real names so they actively have been working into creating this parallel structure that would work alongside the uh the state so it looks like a state within a within uh within a state but more powerful and um people would be um, you know, let's say if you're, if you're, if you're in Sana'a, you'd like, you'd rather be very, very careful into what, what you say, who you talk to, uh, creating like a police state in, in, in the, in the, in the areas they, they control that came into existence after they took Sana'a. And that's, I think when the civil society were basically shocked of what was going on all of this time. And we didn't realize this was, uh, this was, uh, uh this was happening. So when they when they came into Sanaa, they immediately started to shut down all of all of the uh, media outlets. And for us, that was one of the one of the big significant achievements after two thousand and eleven and the and the Arab Spring revolution is that there was there was this environment of huge freedom of speech. You can uh, uh, the number of newspapers you know doubled. Uh, uh, you can. Uh, you can actively, you can even go on TV and 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 critique and criticize the government. Um, on people were seeing that on a day to day basis, that changed after the Houthis um, uh, the Houthis came in. You started then to notice the number of newspapers decreasing, and then today you have seven or eight newspapers that are all run by the by the Houthis, and you would have you know the picture of their leader on each, and, each and, and, uh, and every page, which looks like more propaganda. It has nothing to do with, um, with news. So effectively, I mean, if you are a journalist and you're trying to do an actual work as a journalist, then you'll be, uh, you'll be a target. So civil society charities were shut down. Civil society activities were immediately uh, shut down. People were abducted from their homes, from, from their place of, place of work. I remember in February 2015, when we organized a, it was, just, it was a vigil in the anniversary of the, of the, Arab, uh, the Arab Spring protest in, in 2011. So it was February. And before, we were very, very concerned about this new tense uh, environment. So we, 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 disc- we, we communicated with the Houthi leadership and we took guarantees from them that we're going to have this you know, ceremony, we're going to have this uh, protest but we need to assurances uh, from you that not, no one will be, you know, no one will be harmed. Um, they gave us all of the assurances I think I can I can imagine. Then the moment we started, they they surrounded their protest and then they started um, chasing people out. We then realized a the number of people went missing, and then when we started communicating again with the Houthi leaders, finally they gave us because there was one person that totally went missing that day. And in the night, they called us back and said, okay, go get your friend. He is in uh, one hospital. Uh, it was called Al Ahli Hospital in, in, uh, in Sana'a. And I was very, very concerned because I said, so he was definitely beaten. He's definitely injured. That's why they took him to the hospital. When he went to the hospital to our shock, he was already dead. They have beaten him from 5 p.m., I think until 9 p.m., so severely that he... That he, he died the moment he arrived to the, uh, to the hospital. This is the environment that you live in under the Houthis. So you've been very, very careful into what you can say, what you can do. And that's why basically a political process in this environment is just unimaginable. You cannot have an active political parties where discussions and debates and, and elections come into place where you have a, this kind of you know, police state is running, the, is, 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 is running the
1: show. And I know this is, again, hypothetical and quite ideal, but how does one stop that police state? Would it require Iran to stop funding them? Would it require more international pressure? How does one make the Houthis become less militant and more amenable to peace?
0: I think the first step is people need to take the Houthis seriously. So people need to stop to deal with it. Um, you can criticize, of course. The uh, the you can criticize anything. Like you 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 are entitled, and you're, when when there is a moral obligation, you're you you're supposed to do that. So uh, criticize the Saudi-led coalition or the Yemeni government or the approach, but you need to address what the Houthis are doing very very seriously and seeing this is the harm they're doing on the civilians they're living that living um, under uh, under Houthi rule it is not just an uh, i know for someone who's just sitting in the uk they they like to chant that it's oh let's stop this you know arms straight to uh, to uh, to saudi arabia and make this big campaign fine do that but when you address yemen you really have to address like don't try to pretend as like the other side is because you need to address it with much much seriousness so people can at least understand uh, what is really going on, and without I think a full understandment, people will will not be able to understand what is it, what does it mean to live under you know under uh, under And in, in my neighbourhood, I know there was a, a a charity that was run by a group of youth who used to feed five hundred families that was shut down immediately after the Houthis came in, and uh, the the thing is then you have all of those five hundred families. Uh, left without anyone to look uh, to look after them, but worse even when they complained, they started abducting some of them. So this is like you cannot criticize you. You are not even allowed to to even show your you know this distress with the with the uh, 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 with the situation. So I think what people who need to help with Yemen needs to have an honest and a real discussion and serious discussion into you know onto the Houthis specifically because a country that will be run by by the houthis is for me a scary scary future for the country and it's it's a it's a country that i think millions of people will constantly be leaving and uh, will not be you know will not be in in a in a better shape anytime soon
1: that's pretty dystopian from what's described um i think just one final question before i let you go is uh would you recommend any books or any videos or popular media that we can access to better understand the humanitarian conflict in yemen today
0: i think um this is one of the the main problems in yemen that it's 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 not a topic that is actively discussed and and as i as i referred um just uh, just now it's it's referred only in the terms of in the back of what is the us or the uk um are doing or like what is their relationship to saudi arabia and the and the uae and then on the back of that you'll slightly have discussion on on yemen so there hasn't been um i would encourage people to talk to people from Yemen uh, to 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 um, uh, to speak uh, speak to them. Um, if you if you know um, you know if you know if you know Arabic, um, I would highly recommend. Like you have a number of channels. I would highly recommend bilkis channel. Uh, they do have some of their publications that are translated, so that could uh, that can help. And maybe through your show, we can actively call them to translate more stuff because. Um, they're one of the few channels that try to do a form of good journalism in terms of this, in this environment. And I say the, the good journalists of Yemen who are able to join together and still keep keep things, things uh, going. Um, you have Al Masdar online. Uh, that's also a very good um, a website that I would uh, highly uh, um, uh, highly recommend. Um, and, uh, and the other thing is, uh, the third thing is... Um, Actively try to try to talk to people who are from uh, who are who are from the country. Um, they can um, they can give you uh, like a highlight of the of the uh, of the of the situation. And I would just say, as much as possible try to avoid. For me, what was two things: propaganda media <laughs> and activism media. Uh, activism in general is for me is good, but that's not a place activism by its definition has some also its vices. So you'll not be able just to extract uh, information um, or, or
1: actual facts. Thank you so much for this interview. It's been incredibly useful and incredibly informative. It's been great having you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.